This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to the book of Ruth. Last fall, we began a journey through the Bible. Everyone from two years of age, and I want to make sure I point that out, this year it's new, thanks to Bethany Turner, our early childhood coordinator, we are doing gospel project material with two and three-year-olds. Wrap your head around that. You go say thank you to Bethany for her ministry and her team's ministry to the youngest, all the way up through... Um, seniors in high school are studying the same passage of Scripture that we're preaching on in this room during the school year. So everybody comes through the door studying the same passage of Scripture. And uh, that's an exciting journey to be a part of. Today we're going to try to absorb a whole book, the book of Ruth. So let me set up the story for you. Naomi, there's the first character in the plot. You may want to jot names down as I say them so that you can keep track of the plot line here. Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech. If you don't want to try to spell that, just put Eli, okay? We're going to hit Eli in 1 Samuel. It's going to be very confusing for you. But today, you can put Eli down. Naomi's married to Elimelech. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. Put M and K. M and K, okay? So family of four. Naomi married to Elimelech. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. They are Israelites. While they were in their homeland of Israel, a famine hit the region, so the family moves to Moab to try to weather the storm, to find resources to survive. While they were there, Eli, Elimelech, died. So Naomi is left with just her two sons to care for. While they were there, her two sons married Moabite women by the names of Orpah and Ruth. That's O and R. Okay? Orpah and Ruth, not long after their wedding, tragedy struck again. Malon and Kilion passed away. So there's only three characters left in the story when we're picking it up. You've got Naomi, who's now a widow, and both Ruth and Orpah are also widows. They are Moabite women, Naomi's Israelite. The famine in Israel subsided, and Naomi decides to head back to her homeland while encouraging Ruth and Orpah to stay put in Moab because there's nothing for them in Israel. They have every right to stay. So Orpah does, but inexplicably, Ruth remains by Naomi's side. Ruth remains by Naomi's side. Now look, Naomi had a simple dream. Husband, children, grandchildren. But that dream was quickly dashed to pieces. In just three verses of text, just three verses of text, she loses her husband and her two sons. Now, Naomi's losses would be staggering for anyone in any country, in any culture. But in the ancient Near East, for a woman to lose her husband and sons would be the epitome of suffering. A leading management consultant posed this scenario to American men. He said, your mother, your wife, and your daughter are all in a sinking boat, and you can rescue only one of them. Who do you rescue? 60% of these American men say they rescue their daughter. 40% say they would rescue their wife. All of them would leave their mother adrift. (laughs) Sorry, moms. 
The same consultant posed the very same scenario to Saudi Arabian men. 100% of them said they would rescue their mother. 100%. In traditional Eastern cultures, women have no identity outside the home. Their daughters marry, they leave home, but the sons stay forging a lifelong bond with mom and son. Their sons are their life. Their sons are their life. Naomi has lost her life. She's entered into a living death. She's lost her future. She's lost her reason for living. And this is the primary concern of the book of Ruth. Will she find new life? Will she have a future? Will she rise from the ashes? These are the questions that move us to the edge of our seats in this short book. And what we discover is that Naomi does indeed find new life. She obtains a new future. She does rise from the ashes. How? Through chesed. That's the last time I'm going to say it that way for the sake of you sitting in the front. Chesed is translated as kindness or loving kindness, but its definition is even deeper than that. Dan Block writes this. He says, Chesed is one of those Hebrew words whose meaning cannot be captured in one English word. It is a strong relational term that wraps up in itself an entire cluster of concepts, all the positive attributes of God, love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. In short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. Hesed breathes life into Naomi's staggering losses. And it isn't just how Naomi obtains a new future. It's how we breathe life into others. Hesed is how a community of people come alive. It provides people with a breath of fresh air. It's water to a thirsty mouth. It's food to a hungry stomach. Hesed is how we give people a taste of heaven. So we're going to consider three aspects to Hesed love, a loving life. Three aspects to Hesed love, a loving life. Hesed love, a loving life, risks, protects, and dies. It risks, it protects, and it dies. First, it risks. Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, has decided to stay with her, even though she had every right to return home. Both of them have traveled now from Moab to Israel. This is after the famine, and Naomi is absolutely grief-stricken. Take a look at these verses. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, some of you have experienced personally or you've witnessed firsthand how crippling depression can be. It renders you emotionally numb, physically lethargic, 
This is the picture that's being painted of Naomi. And it's understandable. What's not understandable is Ruth's willingness not only to stay with Naomi, but her willingness to take great risk in caring for her. In chapter 2, there's a seemingly benign verse. This is what it reads. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now on the surface, it doesn't look like going out into a field looking for food is all that risky, but it is. Ruth is a Moabite living in Israel, which means she's a racial minority. She's a religious minority. She comes from a people group Israelites would always be looking at through the corners of their eyes. She's a widow. All of this means that in Israel, she's the lowest on the social totem pole. But that's not all that makes this move risky. The very first words in the book of Ruth locate this story historically. It took place during the time of the judges. And as we've seen, the time of the judges is Israel's dark ages. She's living among a people who have wandered from God morally, spiritually, socially. This is not an ideal environment for Ruth. A female, a widow, a racial and religious minority. In fact, just to paint the picture further, there's a story at the end of the book of Judges that we didn't cover. Judges 19 gives us an idea of how vulnerable women were at this time. It describes in almost X-rated detail how a traveling Levite, an Israelite, pushed his concubine out the front door of a house where he was staying to placate thugs who were banging at the door. They proceeded to rape her all night, and the Levite found her dead on the doorstep in the morning. This is the environment Ruth's living in. She's financially destitute, she's sexually vulnerable, and she herself is lonely, and yet she takes the initiative and the risk to venture out to find food for Naomi. Hesed love takes risks. Usually when we think of courage, we think of something dramatic, something that grabs the headlines in the newspaper the next day. I think most acts of courage are hidden, like Ruth's venturing out to the field alone. Most of us in her situation would probably default to self-preservation mode. We would hunker down, wouldn't we? Play it safe. But what would have happened to Naomi if Ruth had done that? Hunkering down, playing it safe, going into self-preservation mode. It's a surefire way to live an unloving life. Because you can't live a loving life without taking risk. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. 
Hesed is what gave Naomi new life and a future. But there's nothing safe about Hesed love. It requires risk. Erica Turner, one of our faithful attendees, is an African-American woman living in Cedarburg. She's taken risk out of love for the people of God, out of love for her community, to start a group called Bridge the Divide. It's all about starting conversations about race in Ozaki County, in Southeast Wisconsin, and beyond, which, if you haven't noticed in our area, is rather white. It's a risk. But you can't live a loving life by going into self-preservation mode. Rachel Shep is the executive director of CareNet, a ministry that works to protect the lives of the most vulnerable human beings on the planet, unborn children. You'll hear a little bit more about this in October, but CareNet is moving to a new location, to a neighborhood closer where to, to the bulk of where their clients live. And it's a tough neighborhood, two blocks from Planned Parenthood. It's a risk. But you can't live a loving life by hunkering down. Think of the countless missionaries who leave behind home, family, the familiar to venture out into the unknown, even the dangerous unknown. There are countless families now working in marketplace ministries and alliance missions in parts of the world where it is not safe to hold a Bible in your hand. All to tell them about Jesus. Living a loving life means taking risk. Second, Hesed love protects. Living a loving life protects. The field Ruth providentially wandered into in search of food belongs to an Israelite named Boaz. After seeing an unfamiliar face working in his field, Boaz asked his manager who she was. So after getting the lowdown onto her, Boaz went to her and this is what he said. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Now multiple barriers separate Ruth from Boaz. Ruth is a disconnected, poor, female, Moabite foreigner. Boaz is a connected, wealthy, male, Israelite clan leader. And he breaks through all those barriers with a single word when he addresses her as my daughter. Boaz is the one with power. But he's using his power to protect Ruth. He's using it to protect the vulnerable. This too is Hesed love. Boaz gives her seven crisp commands. Do not pick in another field. Do not leave this field. Stay close to the other women who work for me. Keep your eyes on the field my people are harvesting. Follow the other women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. When you're thirsty, go get a drink from this particular set of jars. We look at that and we say, well, what's the big deal? <laughs> Boaz is saying much more to Ruth than, hey, Ruth, it's nice to meet you. Go ahead, make yourself at home. Pick wherever you want to pick and, and yeah, you can have it. No problem, no worries. He's doing much more than that. He recognizes how much she's at risk. And he's saying to her, you will be safe here. I invite you into my sphere of protection. 
the kind of integrity and the system and environment he's created would go a long way in mitigating the, the, the nightmares that have given birth to the Me Too movement. The kind of character, integrity, action that Boaz is taking should be emulated. The work culture that he's putting in place is unique to Israel at this time. Refer back to Judges 19 to find out how unique it is. And when you slow down to think about the scene with Ruth in the field and Boaz's leadership, I often think about the role Christians play in the workplace. Over the course of a lifetime, we'll spend how much time at work? A quarter? A third? That's a lot of time spent there. In what ways have you contributed to Hesed love in your place of work? In what ways have you protected the vulnerable? Or spoken up for the voiceless. Like Boaz, if you're a leader in your place of work, approach it as a venue to create a culture of Hesed love. In a sense, Boaz has instituted the very first anti sexual harassment policy in the workplace recorded in the Bible. That's what he's done. Obviously, sexual harassment isn't the only kind of harassment out there, so look for opportunities to reform your place of work. Make it a greenhouse for Hesed love, where, where those who work there can flourish. More broadly speaking, during the rhythms of your typical week, who are the most vulnerable people you end up rubbing shoulders with? In what ways can you show them protectionary love? You know, it's important to note the most vulnerable among us may not appear to be vulnerable, Madeline Levine, in her book, The Price of Privilege, writes this. She says, America's newly identified at-risk group is preteens and teens from affluent, well-educated families. In spite of their economic and social advantages, they experience among the highest rates of depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, somatic complaints, and unhappiness of any group of children. As many as 22% of adolescent girls from financially comfortable families suffer from clinical depression. This is three times the national rate of depression for adolescent girls. Madeline could be describing our area. Those who work closely with students can provide personal stories illustrating this. And this is actually one of the motivations that spawned the student union, TSU. While TSU is a very good name, I am not proposing we change the name. It could operate under the alias, The Field of Boaz. Because our desire is that be an environment of Hesed love. Hesed love protects the vulnerable among us. It creates an environment that is noticeably safer than the world outside of it. Hesed love protects. Third, Hesed love dies. Hesed love dies. The whole story, the entire story, the book of Ruth, is set up by something edgy that took place at the beginning of the book. After Naomi had lost her husband and her sons, she orders Ruth and Orpah to return home to Moab. Now, think with me about what this means for her. She's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, it's just her, Ruth, and Orpah. 
She's ordering them to go home. What does this mean for Naomi? They're all the family she has left. It would certainly render her truly helpless. Why does she do that? So they can have families of their own. Keep in mind, in that culture, family's everything. Naomi knows this. So here's what she's doing. She's destroying something precious to her so she can improve the lives of Ruth and Orpah. This is Hesed love. By deepening her own death, she gives Ruth and Orpah a hope and a future. Now, Ruth does the same thing with Naomi. In a sense, Ruth out-Hesed's Naomi. In order to give Naomi comfort, companionship, food, Ruth gives up friends, family, the possibility of husband and children. Ruth embraces hopelessness in order to give Naomi a measure of hope. At the center of Hesed love, at the center of truly living a loving life, is death. Now reflect for a moment how we typically respond to someone suffering through severe grief. We might listen, but we don't take it for long, right? We, we say, you should get some counseling, or you should be part of this group. Ruth takes a bolder route. She instinctively sees to the heart of the issue. What Naomi needs is lifelong physical help and companionship. What Naomi needs to come alive, to rise from the ashes, is Hesed love. But in order for Ruth to give that to her, Ruth has to die. She has to die to her dreams. She has to die to what she thought her life would be like. She has to die to what her options are. Toward the end of her life, French novelist Francois Segon was asked in an interview, have you lived the life you wanted to live? She answered, yes, I've lived to be free. The interviewer responded, then you've had the freedom you wanted? She said, yes. Well, I was obviously not free when I was in love with someone. But one is not in love all the time, fortunately. Apart from that, yes, I've been free. While the comment is sad, it is illustrative. Love always narrows and limits our lives. It always boxes us in. Every time the Olympics come around, one theme that often emerges as the stories of the athletes are told is how much devotion, dedication, and single-mindedness they have to devote to their sport. You know what I'm talking about? The features are very moving features, but, but you really get the sense that, wow, that this single-minded devotion to this thing, and many of these athletes have to be homeschooled, they have to hire private tutors for their education, their social lives are anything but mainstream because, because the sport requires so much of their time. They are engaged in Hesed love. Their love for their sport narrows and limits their lives. Their love of being the best at their sport boxes them in. So look, if you are feeling trapped, it could be you're engaged in Hesed love. If you're feeling boxed in, it could be you're engaged in Hesed love. In fact, if you have a loved one sitting next to you, go ahead and turn to them and say, I feel trapped. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now say to them, you're welcome. This is what Ruth is doing with Naomi. 
Her hesed love for Naomi has the effect of eliminating options. The option to return home, the option to marry, the option to have children, some semblance of a normal life. In order for you to provide someone else with hesed love, you have to die to freedom, you have to die to your options. Eric and Mindy are friends of mine. They've been married for around 20 years. They have a daughter named Elena who was born with a mitochondrial disease confined to a wheelchair with little ability to move or little ability to communicate. She wasn't expected to live past the age of five or six. But she has. She's 14 today. I had the privilege of being part of her baptism around four years ago. Eric and Mindy love their daughter so much, and I stand in awe of it. But their love for Elena limits their lives. From the vehicles they have to drive or can't drive, to the home they have to live in or can't live in, from the trips they can take or can't take, by comparison, their lives are limited. Because of Elena's condition, she's contended with hundreds of seizures throughout her life. Every cold she gets leads to pneumonia. Mindy writes in her blog of often being jarred awake by Elena's changing breathing pattern, which often indicates Elena's sick again. Compared to most families, they're boxed in. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time talking with them or, or hanging out with them to notice that. But while their hesed love for Elena may limit and narrow their lives, I will tell you, Eric and Mindy possess a depth of soul that is rare and magnetic. And Elena has flourished, flourished by being the object, the recipient of their Hesed love for her. At the end of the story, Boaz and Ruth marry. In marrying this vulnerable female racial minority widow, Boaz gives Ruth hope and a future. Which foreshadows another wedding that will happen centuries later. A wedding that will cause a vulnerable, hopeless bride to rise from the ashes. The groom in this wedding would come from the family line of Boaz and Ruth. Of course, I'm referring to Jesus Christ and his taking to be his bride, the church, believers like you and me. As believers, we are the objects of the greatest Hesed love ever to make an appearance on the human stage. in leaving his throne in heaven and coming to earth to clothe himself in frail human flesh, Jesus embraced risk to protect the spiritually vulnerable by narrowing and limiting his existence to the extent of dying a cursed death as if he was an outcast. 
in his life and in his death, Jesus' Hesed love for you was on full display. Take it in. Absorb it. Ponder its depth. And let it turn you into someone who breathes life into others. Let's pray. Loving God, I pray, I pray, we would be able to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love Jesus has for us. The human characters in this story are amazing, but they serve to point beyond themselves to the pristine character and love of Jesus Christ. We need your spirit to impress upon our souls the magnitude of the love you have for us. As that happens, God, would you make us like your son? Overflowing with an outpouring of love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, and loyalty. As this becomes true of the global body of believers in this particular church, may people far from you find this community to be a breath of fresh air, a community where they can come alive, where they can rise from the ashes. We pray these things not for the renown of any particular church, but for the fame of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.